Hear the word of the Lord this morning from John 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen? I want you to think about the Gospel of John like you would evidence in a court case. John has made a remarkable claim in the prologue, in the very beginning of his Gospel. His claim is that Jesus, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, that He took on flesh, that He was born of a virgin, and that He dwelled among mankind. That this Jesus is fully God and fully man. And then what He does throughout the rest of His Gospel, among some other things, but primarily what John is doing is presenting evidence throughout his gospel to support that claim that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And uh, most prominent, I think, among that evidence are the signs that Jesus did. The turning water into wine, healing the official son, healing the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, healing the man born blind, and of course, raising Lazarus from the dead. All these function like evidence in a court case. John also provides for us the I am sayings of Jesus, which is an echo of God's self-revelation in Exodus 3.14. Jesus' own assertions about Himself is that, uh, that He is God. And we think about those seven I am sayings. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. John also explains with the inclusion of all the festivals that take place, John also explains how Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law and fulfills the festivals. How uh, Jesus is the Passover lamb how Jesus fulfills the feasts 
of booths, how Jesus is the true temple where those who worship, worship in spirit and in truth. All this is evidence for the reader to put their faith in Jesus Christ and that by having faith that we might have life in His name. So when we come to chapter 20, as we are approaching the end of this Gospel, John is making his final case here. He is presenting for us his final bit of evidence. And this is the most important evidence in all the Gospel of John regarding his claim about Jesus. It is the evidence of the resurrection. For John, faith in Jesus requires faith in the resurrection. If you're going to have faith in Jesus, you must have faith that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And for John, if Jesus is God, then He'll resurrect from the dead. And if He hasn't resurrected from the dead, then Jesus isn't truly God. Faith in Jesus requires faith in the resurrection. I want to give you three reasons in these ten verses here why you and I should have faith in the resurrection. Three reasons. Number one, I want you to see in this passage that the resurrection is based upon credible evidence. You see that here in the inclusion of all the details surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Look with me first at the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. A woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. She has gone to the tomb. And Mary Magdalene is included as a witness in John's Gospel that the stone of the tomb that sealed the entrance of the tomb has been moved. Mary Magdalene assumes the worst has happened. It was common in the ancient culture for uh, robbers to come and to uh, take uh, what they could, valuables that they could from a grave, anything that a person was buried with of value, they would go into those tombs and they would steal from those tombs. And so Mary Magdalene, she assumes the absolute worst that Jesus' body has been taken away by thieves and they have moved His body. And so she goes and finds Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John the Apostle, and she tells them, as we read in verse 2, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid Him. So first, she is an eyewitness that some sort of disturbance has happened with the tomb. Of course, we know, and I, I would not be a good preacher if I didn't say this right here, okay? Good preachers have to say this. We know that the stone was moved not to let Jesus out, but the stone was moved to let the witnesses in so that they can go and see what has happened inside the tomb. And so Mary Magdalene, she's a witness that the stone has been moved. And as a result, Simon Peter and John, the beloved, move swiftly into action. John accounts for us because he and Peter go and see the tomb that they make haste to go to the tomb. They move in that direction in verse 3. They're going toward the tomb. But by the time we get to verse 4, John accounts for us that they are in a dead sprint for the tomb. They are in a 
hurry to get to the tomb. And John reaches the tomb first. I can't help but to think that this was a, a humble brag that he was able to tell Simon Peter for the rest of their lives together, you know, hey, I got to the tomb first. Uh, we often think that this is a detail that John the Apostle is younger than Simon Peter. It's really the only thing that we can conclude from a detail like this, that simply that John is able to get to the tomb faster than Simon Peter because Simon Peter is older. And so John arrives there first. But including a detail like this provides for us credible evidence. Where were you when you saw the tomb? Well, I was with Peter, John is saying. We both went to the tomb. Who arrived at the tomb first? I arrived at the tomb first. Why did you arrive to the tomb first? Because I can run faster than Simon Peter. All of this is details that provide for us credible evidence of the resurrection. Not only do they provide that, but we also see the evidence provided of what they, what, they, what they see when they get to the tomb. What do they see when they get to the tomb? Look at verse 5. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. So John the Apostle looks down and he realizes that the linen cloths are still there, but there is no body. Simon Peter finally arrives, and he goes right into the tomb. We read, goes right into the tomb. He sees the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. We think that just as we see that our resurrected Lord, he's able to enter a room without using the door, we think simply that what Jesus did upon his resurrection is just pass right through those grave clothes, leaving the linen cloths undisturbed as well as the spices with which they used to bury the body. And so John the Apostle and Simon Peter, they are eyewitnesses to all of this. This meets the standard for John's Jewish readers. Deuteronomy, uh, what is it? Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, uh, tells us that every claim, every charge must be established by two or three witnesses. And so I think simply what we should see here is what John is doing is he is providing for us credible testimony, not only about the details of the resurrection, but about even the details of those who went and saw the resurrection, who were witnesses to the resurrection. Have any of you ever seen that movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? You remember the movie? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And what are they on a crusade for? Does anyone remember? The grail, the, the cup that Jesus supposedly used at the Last Supper. And, and if you can drink from that cup, you can have eternal life. And so, Indiana Jones and his dad and companions arrive at the cave and his father has been shot and so they're trying to get Indiana Jones to hurry through this maze and retrieve this holy grail and bring it back and so he can heal his father and, and give this cup, give this holy grail to the villains of the movie. And Indiana Jones, he reaches the place in this cavern where there is a massive gorge 
that's there. And he's following all the, the, the puzzle that he has in his book. And he reaches this gorge and there's no way across. And what does Indiana Jones do? He realizes he must take a leap of faith. A leap of blind faith. And so, in very dramatic fashion, he musters the courage, or is it faith? Uh, and he very dramatically puts one foot way out, and then he steps down, all his weight down on that foot, and he steps down onto a pathway that's been hidden from plain sight the entire time. Is faith in Jesus' resurrection a leap of blind faith? Is that what John expects us to do? Does John expect us to take a leap of blind faith that there's, that there's nothing to see here? It's just a claim that you and I are expected to believe without any sort of evidence whatsoever. Absolutely not. John is providing for us mountains of evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, including credible evidence to Jesus' resurrection. You might be saying, look, pastor, it's easy for John to believe. I mean, he was there. He walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, touched Jesus. He saw Jesus' signs. He, he saw His miracles. He heard His teachings. John was there when Jesus was crucified. He saw Jesus arrested and crucified. He saw Jesus dead upon the cross. John is a witness there when the Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side. He saw the blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side. John, he knew about the two wealthy men on the Jewish council that buried the body of Jesus. And John, it was even there to see the claim that the body had been resurrected from the dead. That Jesus resurrected from the dead. Of course, it's easy for John to believe that. I, if I had all that kind of evidence, I'd believe too. Do you remember what Jesus says to Thomas at the end of this chapter? Thomas has said, unless I put my hands in the, in the nail scars, and unless I put my hand in his side, I won't believe. Jesus appears to Thomas and He tells Thomas, He asks him, have you believed because you have seen Me? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, Thomas. Now you believe because you have seen Me. But then Jesus, this is the grand conclusion of this chapter. And one of the grand conclusions that John wants his readers to reach here, Jesus tells him, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the whole purpose of John's Gospel. That we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and He provides evidence for us so that our faith is not a blind leap of faith, but that our faith is a reasonable faith. Informed by credible eyewitnesses that reach the standard you might say, that reached the standard for evidence to be admissible, for evidence to be believed, for evidence to be trusted. That's what John is doing here in his account of the resurrection. He wants us to know that faith in Jesus requires 
faith in the resurrection. And we should believe in the resurrection because there's credible evidence for the resurrection. There's a second reason why John wants us to believe in the resurrection. Reason number two, the resurrection begins the restoration of creation. The resurrection begins the restoration of creation. Jesus was not simply resurrected on the third day. He was resurrected on the first day because it was the eighth day. Does that make perfect sense to you? Jesus was resurrected on the third day, the first day, and the eighth day. You say, Pastor, what on earth are you talking about? Jesus, when He talked about His resurrection, on what day did Jesus say He would resurrect from the dead? He would say, well, destroy this temple and three days later, I'll resurrect it. The, the temple will be built again. And Jesus was talking about His body, the temple of His body. So when Jesus talked about resurrecting from the dead, He described it as the third day, that Jesus would resurrect on the third day. How do all four gospel writers talk about the day Jesus was resurrected? I'll let the cat out of the bag here. Look at verse 1. John follows suit as all the other gospel writers. When they mention the resurrection of Jesus, it's not the third day. Look at verse 1. What day is it? It's the first day. Why would John say that Jesus was resurrected on the first day when every time Jesus talked about His resurrection, He talked about it happening on the third day. What John is doing for us is he is bringing full circle the theology from Genesis chapter 1. You know Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God did so in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested, and He enjoyed His good creation. He created mankind who was called to be God's representative on earth, God's royal vice-regent who was called to steward the whole earth, including the garden. And we know what happened with Adam and Eve. They sinned, and curse a curse was pronounced upon God's good creation. Adam and Eve were to follow the pattern that God had set for them, working six days, resting on the seventh to enjoy God's good creation. But all that was interrupted with the introduction of sin and the curse. And so there was a hope, the expectation that one day a son of Adam and Eve would come and he would bring restoration to all that sin had corrupted that there would be a new day of creation. An eighth day, you might say. Another day of creation. An eighth day of creation, which would begin the restoration of God's good creation. Restoring all that sin had destroyed. Think about how John begins his Gospel. John begins his Gospel with an allusion back to what? What does John say? In the beginning was what? The Word. John is referring back to Genesis chapter 1. He is saying 
that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, He is very God, that He took on flesh and He came and He dwelt among us and He is tracking that new creation theology throughout His Gospel until He reaches the climax here in John chapter 20. John 19 and John 20. How do we know He's referring to that? Well, where was Jesus buried? In a tomb, Pastor. Yeah, where was the tomb? In a garden. We just learned in the previous chapter that the tomb was located where? In a garden. What day of the week was Jesus resurrected? The first day. What was present on the day that Jesus was resurrected? Darkness. And who is Mary Magdalene going to think that Jesus is when she sees Him? The gardener. You got it, Michelle. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. All of this is connecting for us in John's Gospel, the theology that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God restoring all that sin has corrupted in God's good creation. You say, well, okay, pastor, that's interesting biblical theology. What difference does that really make? Well, let me tell you, I think there's three things that are so significant that we need to know this. Number one, as Christians... We are a new creation in Christ. Didn't we hear that in the assurance of pardon today from 2 Corinthians? If any person is in Christ, he is a what? He is a new creation. Why are you a new creation? You're a new creation because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So let's say you struggle with a sin, anger, lust, envy, jealousy, greed, lying, worry, Fear, anxiety. Let's say you're struggling with a sin, like we all struggle with a sin. Well, guess what? Because we're a new creation, we have been given the power, just as Travis said, stealing my sermon, that guy. Just as Travis pointed out to us, we have been given the power to overcome our sin. Paul would tell us in Romans 6.11 that you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So dear Christian, you need to understand that your life is connected to Christ because of His resurrection. You are a new creation. Number two, the Christian's bodily resurrection is connected to Jesus' bodily resurrection. Do you ever worry about what will happen when you die? What will happen to your body? What sort of hope is there for you after you die? What sort of hope is there for your loved ones who have died? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that through one man came death, but through another man, Jesus Christ, comes what? New life. The resurrection from the dead. And Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will receive a new body. And so even though we grieve the death of a Christian friend or family member, we do not grieve as those who are without hope. Why? Because the Christian's resurrection is connected to Jesus' resurrection. And one day we will have a body fit and prepared for all eternity with God. Third, you ever become troubled by the evil in the world? 
sickness and war and famine and suffering and cancer and hardship. The resurrection provides hope for us that one day Jesus will return and all, that's, all the effects of sin that we feel presently will be done away with. In the book of Revelation, we see in Revelation 21.4 that in the new creation that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain, for the former things have passed away. You see, our hope is in the resurrection. Faith in Jesus requires faith in His resurrection. And so I hope you're thinking this morning, well, Pastor, I believe all of what you just said this morning. But I wish it was more precious to me. I wish that I had greater hope in that. How can I be reminded of that truth when I suffer and when I grieve? Sunday afternoon, it's become a tradition in the center's household. Usually around 4 o'clock, we have Sundays on Sunday. Sundays on Sunday. And we get out ice cream and chocolate chips and sprinkles and cones and chocolate syrup and whipped cream if it's survived the week, um, maraschino cherries, and we get out all the stuff, and, and we have Sundays on Sunday, and all the kids, they're asking for a couple of hours. I mean, no sooner is lunch finished than the kids are asking, Dad, is it time for Sundays on Sunday? No, I'm going to go to the office and, and study for a little bit. Okay, well, when you come back, then we're going to have Sundays on Sunday, right? Yes. We're going to have Sundays on Sunday because, here's what we tell them, Sunday is the sweetest day of the week. I heard a quote somewhere that a well-spent Sabbath is a foretaste of heaven on earth. You see, what you and I are doing on the Sabbath day by resting from our common and ordinary employments is we are recognizing, we are reminding ourselves that Christ has completed all the work that is absolutely necessary for our salvation. That's one of the things that you should be reminded of this day. When we rest from our common and ordinary recreations, we are instructing ourselves, catechizing our minds, reminding ourselves that our greatest enjoyment in this life not our, our ordinary employments and recreations, it's in our Heavenly Father. The Sabbath day is a day for you to, to, to devote, not just to rest, but also to the exercise of private and public worship where you join together with the saints of God and you participate in the worship of God. You join with the saints on the Lord's Day as preparation for the day when you and I will join with all the saints who have ever lived. We will gather around our elder, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will worship Him for eternity. Faith in Jesus requires faith in His resurrection. And all hinges upon that. 
There's credible evidence given that we should believe that His resurrection happened. We should believe in His resurrection because it's the beginning of a restored creation. And lastly, the third reason John gives us here, he tells us in no uncertain terms that the resurrection fulfills Scripture. Look with me here at the end of verse 8. The Apostle John, he looks in, he sees the, the, the linen cloths, the burial clothes, and what conclusion does John reach? Jesus has resurrected. That's the conclusion that he reaches. He looks in and he says that he did what? He believed. It's the same word that we use for faith. He had faith. He believed that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. However, comma, look at what he says in the very next verse. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. So, they went home. <laughs> John believed that Jesus had resurrected from the dead, but he didn't understand how all of this fit into God's plan of redemption. He did not understand how this fulfilled the Scripture. There's some suggestions. There's a, a few options, a few good options on what Scripture John might be referring to. Some have, have claimed that John's referring to Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Others have suggested that he's referring to Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So some have suggested here a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Others have suggested Hosea 6.2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day... He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Those are all good options. Jesus' resurrection would certainly fulfill all those Scriptures. Maybe it's not necessary for us to see here a direct reference to any single Scripture. Perhaps what John is doing, like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is that he sees the event as the pinnacle moment that all of Scripture is pointing to. John, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, is what Paul says. He's not referring to any single Scripture, but the whole thrust of Scripture is pointing to Jesus' suffering. But not only that, Paul continues to say he was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with what? With the Scriptures. About four years ago, I got on a plane and flew to Augusta, Georgia. Travis was late from picking me up from the airport. He was very apologetic. And I went to an Airbnb and I was anxiously awaiting to be examined by the Savannah River Presbytery to be licensed for gospel ministry. And so I, had all, I traveled with all my stacks of flashcards. 
hundreds and hundreds of flashcards where I was just continually quizzing myself and getting Gina Marie to quiz me. And, um, and so I took those, identified the ones that I needed to remember the most, and I remember sitting in the Airbnb and uh, poor Travis here was quizzing me, and I remember him asking me, which Psalms are Messianic? And I gave, of course, a good answer. Psalm 2 is Messianic. Kiss the Son, lest you be angry and you perish in the way. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And, and Travis, I think he, he just smiled and he began to, to shake his head very kindly. I said, what? That's a good answer. All those psalms are about Jesus. And he said, that's true. Those psalms are about Jesus. And in fact, all the psalms are about Jesus. I've seen him try to trip up poor candidates for gospel ministry who are being examined. He'll ask them, which psalms are messianic? And the correct answer is what? All of the psalms are messianic. If I were to ask you what is the Bible about, you would not be incorrect if you gave the Sunday school answer. What is the Bible about? It's about Jesus, isn't it? All of Scripture is about Jesus. And Jesus, whether by way of typology or symbolism or by fulfillment and consummation, all of Scripture is pointing forward. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ coming. The Gospel writers announce that Jesus Christ has come and the rest of the New Testament is looking back to the fact that Jesus Christ has come. Let me give you some examples of how the Scripture is about Jesus. He's the Son promised to Eve who conquers the serpent. He's Abraham's only begotten Son, the Son of promise through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. He's the royal son of David who comes and defeats all his enemies, who receives exaltation and rules for eternity on God's on the throne. He's the rock the Israelites drank from in the wilderness. Like the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness for the sinful Israelites to look to and receive healing, so too Jesus, when He was lifted up and all sinful men looked unto Him, they received healing. He's the kinsman redeemer of the book of Ruth through whom we receive an eternal inheritance. He's the lamb who was sacrificed on the day of atonement and he's the priest who goes into the holy place with his blood as, his own, as the own sacrifice. He's the temple where God's people gather for worship. He's the angel of the Lord who went before the Israelites in the wilderness leading them into the promised land. He's the fourth man in the fire with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the branch in the book of Jeremiah. He is the one who reverses the curse. He's the firstborn of all creation. And soon He will return to consummate His kingdom. He's the one who conquers sin, death, hell, and the grave. He must rise from the dead. He has to. All Scripture is pointing to Him. 
Faith in Jesus requires faith in His resurrection. The resurrection fulfills Scripture. The resurrection begins the restoration of creation. And there is credible evidence for us to have an informed faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we serve a risen, living, living King. We thank You that death and the grave could not hold Him. That on the third day, on the first day of the new creation, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that He was resurrected by Your power. And because of that, we have a hope. Not just in our own resurrection, but we have a hope that You will restore all things that sin has brought a curse to. Lord, we pray and ask that You would increase our faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. Remind us every Lord's Day, remind us every Lord's Day, every Sabbath day, that our Savior has been resurrected from the grave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.